the people of God said, Amen. Choir, may your prayerful rendition of it as well echo into the hearts of those who are worshiping in Sutherland Springs this morning. Powerful. Our scripture lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to follow along as I read. The words will be on the screen if you'd like to look at there. Look at it there. The words of Jesus to his disciples. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Sounds very pastoral care-ish, doesn't it? But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch Because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my pastor friends told me the story of the couple in his church who were engaged to be married. They wanted an all-out big church wedding. They selected their date way in advance. They reserved a beautiful sanctuary which contained a beautiful, elegant organ. The bride, her mother, sister, and the maid of honor, and probably some others, spent hours trying to select the right gown, and finally she said yes to the dress. And then, now, my friend didn't tell me all of these details, but, you know, he talked about all the, the, the things that were going on. And so, you know, they, they had a list. Preacher, check. Marriage license, check. Bridesmaid dresses, check. Bridal gown, check. Flower girl and ring bearer, check, check. Florist, check. Caterer, check. Reception venue, DJ for the reception, wedding cake, check, check, check. Tuxedos, check. Organist, Philip, you've done a lot of this, check. 
Soloist, check. Makeup person and hairstylist, check, check. Rehearsal dinner, check. Honeymoon venue, check. Videographer, check. Hotel reservations for the wedding party, check. Gifts for the wedding party, check. And the dads in the room are going, check. Do they have a 529 plan for weddings these days? I could go on. This couple made a lot of preparations, but then my pastor friend called them to set up the time for their six pastoral uh, premar- premarital pastoral counseling sessions that he required. And on the other line of the phone was silence, and then what? Counseling? They had prepared for their wedding ceremony, but they had not thought about preparing for their marriage. They asked if there were fees involved with the counseling because they were on a tight budget, you know, and weren't sure if they could ask Dad for another check. How much do you charge, they said. And he replied, How much are you spending on your cake? That put it into perspective. Shouldn't they value or shouldn't couples getting married value the spiritual preparation at least as much as the cake? Shouldn't they invest in the spiritual wellness of their marriage so they are ready for the challenges that will surely come? This parable is about preparation, being prepared for Jesus. It's a story about a first century Jewish wedding set in Jesus' final discourse to his disciples, likely the Thursday before he would go to the cross, speaking to them on the Mount of Olives, a perfect place for an intimate teaching opportunity. He's dealing with two major questions, hits us as well. Number one, when will Christ return? And number two, what shall we do while we wait? If you look back at chapter 24 on your own time, you'll see Jesus was talking to the disciples particularly about the next coming. They didn't understand, but he was preparing them and helping them to know there would be a next coming. Unlike modern weddings, the typical Jewish wedding took place over a period of time, and there were many steps involved. And it's helpful for us to understand some about a first century wedding in Palestine that we can make sense of the parable that Jesus teaches. First, the bridegroom would travel from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride and paid a price or a betrothal to the bride's father, This established the marriage covenant. Then the bridegroom returned to his father's house where he would spend probably the next year or so establishing the couple's accommodations in his father's house. You and I would say sort of like an in-law suite maybe to get it all done and furnished and everything. When this was finished, no particular time given by the way, the bridegroom would then come for his bride at a time not known to her. Then he would return her to his father's house, 
The marriage would be established, and then they would celebrate in a wedding feast, which could last a week, during which time the bride remained in her bridal chamber. Many more people would be invited to the festival than were to the actual ceremony. The parable that Jesus taught here is commonly called the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. In weddings here in America, the bridesmaids escort the bride to her wedding. In Jesus' day, the bridesmaids escorted the bridegroom to meet the bride for the wedding. Instead of carrying flowers, they carried oil lamps, most likely a small wooden torch-like thing that held a lamp of oil on top with a wick that was trimmed and lighted at night. The glow of the lamps enabled everyone to see how handsome and well-appointed or wealthy the bridegroom was and enabled the bridegroom to see his way to the bride. There weren't street lamps and all of that back then. But here's the catch. No one, not even the bride herself, knew when the bridegroom would come. How would that go over in today's wedding planning world? But the bridesmaids had to be ready for his arrival. This meant that they had to be prepared. Their responsibility was to enable everyone to see him and to illumine his way to the bride. At midnight, the groom, the bridegroom, would send a man into the street, could have been his brother or best man or whatever, as we would think about it, send a man into the street to announce that he was coming for his bride. And the midnight cry was, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here, come out to meet him, people, get ready, he's coming. This would alert the bridesmaids that the bridegroom was on his way. They would spring into action, trim their wicks, light their oil lamps, and meet him outside. And then they would escort him down the street to the home where his bride was patiently awaiting his arrival. If we just stopped there, we would have a typical wedding story reported perhaps in the flare section of the Jerusalem Times and Dispatch. But there's more to the story. Jesus tells the disciples that there were ten bridesmaids who were charged with the responsibility of waiting for the bridegroom. Now the number ten is the number of wholeness or perfection in Scripture. There are uh, ten commandments, as you know, but there's nothing in particular about the number 10 here, it's just that there happen to be 10 bridesmaids. Jesus also tells us that in the parable, all 10 of them fell asleep. And there's nothing problematic here either. They had to rest. They did not know when the bridegroom would come, so like normal people, they would have to get some rest too. They didn't know he was coming. And getting some shut-eye, did not make them wise or un, or wise or um, or foolish. The problem came when they heard the midnight cry. Five of the bridesmaids were unable to light their lamps, unable to fulfill their responsibility because they'd brought no oil. They made no preparation. They all knew their job, but only half of them prepared adequately. 
The five poorly prepared bridesmaids tried to get the other five to give them some of their oil, but the prepared bridesmaids would not do so. If you are a student in the room, I know a lot of our youth are on retreat this weekend and are not here this morning, but some of you are here, and if you're a student, you may have had one of your friends who didn't prepare for their test ask you if you could send them what was on today's test because they have it on E-Day tomorrow. There are some of you who may have had a friend who did not prepare their homework to text you and ask you if you would text them all of the answers so that they could get their homework turned in. When I was in high school, one of my best friends, Tony Sechrist, ended up being the valedictorian of our class. And people were all the time going to Tony asking him if, they, if he would let them have his homework. People who are not prepared are often at the last minute trying to get someone else to take their responsibility. It happens in the workplace. You see this in the workplace and in other environments as well. That happened in this parable. Half of the bridesmaids were not prepared for the very task they were assigned. The five bridesmaids who were prepared did not give the others any oil. Instead, they said, you, you go buy it yourself. There's another sermon here on the power to say no. That's a totally different message, but they said no. They said, go buy your own. And Jesus tells the disciples and us that while this group of bridesmaids was out at the last minute after midnight at the 7-Eleven, the bridegroom came for the bride. And the five prepared bridesmaids were able to escort the bridegroom to his bride, and then they all went to the wedding feast, which would last for the next week. But the unprepared bridesmaids totally missed the opportunity. By the time they arrived back, the door was locked to the festival, and the bridegroom said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. Commentators and preachers have read into this parable and have assigned a lot of meanings. There are a number of different ways that you can interpret it. But based on the context that we have in Matthew 24 and 25, I believe this is a simple parable from Jesus to the disciples about preparation, about being prepared. It's the day, the last day of his physical life on earth. Next day he would die on the cross and he was preparing the disciples for a time that he would no longer be with them and telling them that they needed to be active and alert and preparing daily for his next coming. But only the Father knew when that would be. Back in, verse, in chapter 24, for example, in verse 26, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus had already told this to the disciples. And then in verse 42, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So this is the mindset he's trying to instill within them. To be ready for Jesus to return someday, but to live into the kingdom at every given moment. Every moment doing the work that each day presents and doing it precisely because we know that the bridegroom is always close 
at hand, whether the end happens anytime soon or not. I believe Jesus is telling us that we need to focus on meantime living, being so ever so aware that we live in between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And it matters how we live here and now. Perhaps one lesson here is that the Christian life is like a marathon, not a sprint. Raise your hand if you've ever run a whole marathon. Oh, we have some. Yeah, we have some. Wow. I've never run a, a whole one. I've done the half and the whole is on my bucket list. But when you run a whole marathon, you start preparing in June or July, five months or so before the marathon if it was in November like it is in Richmond. Jesus is not training short-distance runners who will perpetually dash for history's finish line, but long-distance runners who are poised to stay faithful over a period of time. And I am sad that many Christians today are not in it for the long haul. Many Christians will cut and chase something else. Pastor may retire or maybe there's change in the congregation or they're doing something new or maybe the church, you know, down the road seems to have greener grass and people will move on to what appears to be the better thing. We see it in marriage too. Too often couples don't stay in it for the long haul. One of them or the other will become infatuated with a newer model and sometimes just simply don't do the hard work of creating a healthier, sustaining marriage. Marathon running requires a long-term vision and a lot of commitment and preparation. Marriages to sustain over time require a long-term commitment and vision and lots of preparation and dedication. It's like training. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. We must have stick-to-itiveness if we are going to run the race that is set out before us. The bridesmaids also remind us, secondly, that each of us is expected to make our own preparation. Five of the bridesmaids didn't prepare, and when the bridegroom came and they heard the midnight cry, then they started to ask, well, hey, can you help us out here? And they said, no, we're sorry, you're going to have to go down and buy your own oil. Matthew Hensley and Julie Gibson back at the sound at the 9 o'clock service, and I ran the half yesterday. Did anybody else run the half yesterday or one of the races? And Matthew was the faster pastor. His 10 years younger legs got me by 15 minutes, but we finished the race. Julie had a personal record yesterday. But you can't run a distance run without preparation. I started in August. We do hill work. We do speed work. We try to eat right. I, I work with a, run with a group in my neighborhood. Uh, we learn the course so that you can see it in, in your mind. We plan a race strategy. We work tapering toward the end. We hard, hydrate and then the night before eat lots of pasta and carb up. And then the night before the race, I set everything out. I, I put my oatmeal out, my, my uh, breakfast, I lay my running shorts out, I put the number on my shirt, 
everything is laid out. So the next morning, I am prepared for the race. And I even shave before I run. One of my friends who trained me to race, to run, said, I always get up and I get a shower and I shave like I have an appointment for, with somebody. Yeah. So that's what I do. A lot of preparation. Uh, Matthew, uh, I could not depend on Matthew's preparation. That's his preparation. I couldn't depend on Julie's preparation. I couldn't draft behind them hoping they could tag me along. I'm responsible for my own preparation. What it is in your life that you must prepare for? Are there things in your life that you are trying to lean in on someone else to compensate for where you have not tried. Five of the bridesmaids were not prepared for the bridegroom. They missed the opportunity to do what they were called to do. Jesus did not want his disciples to miss the opportunity to do kingdom work, and he certainly didn't want them to get discouraged in their waiting. We know that waiting can be discouraging sometimes. Now more than ever, I'm hearing people say to me things like, Pastor Bob, I wish Jesus would just come. Jesus, please come. I'm tired of seeing the news reports. I can't take it anymore. Every time I turn on the television or go on the internet, there's some more bad news, whether it's Virginia Tech or Sandy Hook or Orlando or Las Vegas or Charleston or Sutherland Springs, Texas or Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Maria or North Korea or racial division in our land or partisan politics in our country. People are saying, I'm just ready for it to stop. I'm so tired of it. Jesus, just come. And the tendency for us is to throw up our hands and say, I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes and everything will be all better. But Jesus has come. He's come. We cannot and must not be satisfied with things as they are. God has come. God has ushered in the kingdom. And we are to live each day in anticipation of his return. Yes, there are some bad things in this world. But we cannot give up and just say, I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes. That's kind of like the Thessalonians in the New Testament. We can't do that. We must stick with it. God is calling people to be prepared and to think about the Christian life as a marathon, not a sprint. We must work until Jesus comes, says the old hymn. And that work doesn't mean we not, that we don't be. We must be, but we also need to be prepared. And the last thing I would say is that preparedness can't be transferred to others. I've hit on that a little bit. I can't depend on you to do my spiritual preparation. You can't depend on me. We are responsible for our own preparation. We cannot expect it to be passed down from generation to generation. We don't inherit spiritual preparedness from our family. Nor can we expect to gather some of the crumbs that might fall off of your Sunday school or preacher's table. Each of us must prepare. And you might ask the question, how? How can we be prepared? 
Miss um, Amanda touched on this in her children's message at the, at the end of some of the things that Christians need to engage in all along the Christian life to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. See, he, there are many comings. There are many comings of the Messiah. And I hope you'll write these down. Uh, one of them is Jesus' presence in the Word. He, his, he's present through His Word. His words, He speaks to us through His Word. Uh, the other is Jesus' presence in communion, in the bread and cup. Some churches speak to this as the, in sac- the word sacrament, but we use the word communion and ordinance here. Uh, Jesus' present, presence in gathering together, corporate worship, community. Even when the church down the road appears to have greener grass, we stick to it because this is where God has called us. This is the place God has situated us. This is the community we are called to reach. This is where we gather together. Jesus' presence is in our going out and making disciples. Jesus' presence is also in serving the least of these, his children. That's also in chapter 25, and we'll see that as you continue to read after this parable. The word, communion, gathering together, making disciples, serving the least of these, these are simple practices of Christian discipleship. And over a period of time, as we work on them, we will be prepared when he does come. We seek to be faithful disciples who do our duty at appropriate times and are prepared for the coming of the Lord when he comes. Such disciples can lay down and rest in confidence like the five bridesmaids who had the oil. They were ready. Rather than being kept awake by panicky, last-minute anxiety. What about people who keep putting off things spiritually? I've done it. I do it. Many Christians do it. But there are also non-Christians, people who don't yet know the Lord, who put things off that are spiritual And my prayer is that all of us, believer and non-believer, will seek God's direction and not put things off that are spiritual and that we will work until the day that Jesus comes. Dr. Will Willimon has been a pastor and has been a Methodist bishop and dean of the chapel at Duke University. He tells the story of when he was a young pastor in rural Georgia. A dear uncle of one of his church members died suddenly, and although the uncle was not a member of Willimon's church, Dr. Willimon and his wife decided that they would go to the funeral. So they drove to what he calls a backwoods, off-brand Baptist church for the funeral on a sunny afternoon. It was, Willimon said, unlike anything he had ever seen. They wheeled in the casket, and soon thereafter, the pastor began to preach. With great fire and flailing of his arms all over the place, the preacher thundered, It's too late for Joe, pointing at the casket. He might have wanted to do this or that in his life, but it's too late for him now. It's all over. He might have wanted to straighten out his life, but he can't now because it's finished. Willimon sat there and thought to himself, Well, This is certainly a great comfort for those who are bereaved in the family. 
And he asked his wife in the car on the way home, have you ever heard anything so manipulative, cheap, and inappropriate? I would never preach a sermon like that. His wife agreed, saying it was tacky, calloused, and manipulative. And of course, his wife added, the worst part is that everything he said is true. 